I like to eat. Isn't that shocking? You know, I always feel like I give you some great confession of the soul on Sunday mornings. Yes, I enjoy food of all types, except pickles. Don't like pickles. Mushrooms. I don't like mushrooms either. No, just it's a texture thing. They just t- texture's weird on mushrooms. I I love my wife, so I ate kale chips last night. If you saw that on Facebook, and that was like Louis Grizzard said, there's some things the good Lord gave us more sense than to eat, and that's kind of how I felt about that last night. So I love food. I do. I do. I, gen- I do enjoy food. I really do. But but what I, what I enjoy about food most times isn't the food. I enjoy eating with people. I enjoy lunch meetings and breakfast meetings. I enjoy sitting around the table with people and talking. Like I just enjoy the, 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 the notion of people gathering together around a meal and laughing and telling stories and getting to know each other. And I just enjoy the, the fellowship that comes when we gather together and eat, whether it be here at church, around a church meal or a church table, whether it be, whether it be you know, in a restaurant with family and friends, whether it be in a meeting, you know, breakfast or lunch meeting where you're, where you're across the table, bouncing ideas off each other and learning from each other. There's something, there's something holy. There's something holy about a shared meal. And that's always been the case. All across Scripture, there's something holy about a shared meal. We see it with Abraham when the angel comes and he tells Sarah, go, go, go get some, make some bread and, and, and kill the fat calf. And, the, and, and God says that uh, this time next year you'll have a son. And Sarah hears that and she laughs and says, that will be the name of this child, Isaac, for I've heard laughter. We see it when Jesus not only in the gift of communion, but we see it in Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he walks with the when he walks with the um, with the disciples and they get to Emmaus and they want him to stay. They go in together and they break bread. They said in the breaking of the bread they realize that it's the Lord. There's something very holy, something very holy about this notion of a shared meal. It is truly a great thing. And today. Even in the Middle East, in Israel, in the Holy Land, that remains true today. One of my greatest moments of all the times I've gone to Israel with Sam, one of the holiest moments for me was in a hole-in-the-wall little side restaurant where we were stopping to eat lunch on one of our excursions. And Mike, who was the bus driver, who was the greatest bus driver in the history of bus drivers, he takes his big bus that's Biggest this church and gets up smaller roads on the mountains. It's, it's amazing. We're sitting there eating one day, and the driver always eats off the side with the with the leader and other people. And Mike said, "Andy, come eat with us." And Mike invited me to eat, to eat lunch with him. And in that culture, that's not just sharing a meal. That's saying we're friends. We're family. We're connected. To share a meal in the Holy Land today is more than just to eat together. It's to say we're family. We're connected. So in contrast that here in our culture, how many of us eat our lunch in our car? How many of us eat our meals on the go? I know that I do a lot. 
I'll just, I'll just drive into, this, into a fast food place, grab some burgers or grab some, a biscuit and grab whatever and go on. I'll be on my way. We, we eat a lot, but we don't commune a lot, do we? We get so busy that we stop and eat, but we may feel the body. But often in our mealtime, we don't feel the soul. I mean, every study tells you that families that eat dinner together frequently, every measurable statistic that you can measure shows those, health, those families are healthier. And I'll confess the Stodders don't eat around the table as often as we should. None of us do, do we? We get so busy. We know we won't do. We know we should. We just get so busy with life. See, I think that's the thing. I think that's, I think, y'all, I think that's the great temptation and the great lie that busyness sells us is we get so busy living that we don't really live. We get so busy doing things that we think are important that we don't actually take time to do the things that are actually important. At least that's how I feel sometimes in my own life. So we see this notion of a shared meal being so holy, being so beautiful, and seeing so powerful. So notice, we see two, 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 two scriptures I want us to focus on today. We read the Isaiah passage and the gospel passage. We're going to get back to the gospel passage in one second. But I want you to notice in the Isaiah package, passage, notice what happened. God says to the, to, through the prophet Isaiah to the listeners, he says, come, come, eat. Come and get, pay without money and get milk and wine and food. Come and get this life-giving thing. Come and eat and delight yourself. Come and, and delight yourself in this meal. And what we see there, what we see in this moment is that God is inviting us to his table. Now, you can interpret that in terms of communion, sure. But you, but you need to hear this. God is saying to those that are listening, come. Come and share a meal with me. Come and eat with me. Come and be one with me. And in that culture, in that culture, that's not just an invitation to a party. That is an invitation to relationship. That is God saying, you are welcome at my table. You are welcome in my presence. You are welcome in this place. You have a spot in my table. You have a spot in my life. God is saying, I desire to be in relationship with you. I love you. You are worth something to me. You are valuable. You are precious. Come and eat with me. God is extending to us an invitation to relationship. God is saying this. You are worthy. And y'all, worth is such a beautiful thing. Our culture doesn't give worth, does it? Our culture makes us earn worth. Our culture says our worth comes from our success or our victories or our perfection 
or our lives or our whatever. So we're always seeking to earn our worth in this culture. We're always seeking to prove our worth in this culture. We're always seeking to show that we are worthy. When God says, no, you don't have to earn this. Come. You don't even have to have money. Just come to my table. For you are worthy. The text says that he will glorify us. My goodness, y'all. God will pour his glory upon me and you. Wow. You are worthy. You're beautiful. You're his. He desires you. You don't have to earn that. You just have to receive it. That's who you are in the light of God's glory. You are worthy. Wow. So we see in Isaiah this, but, but the gospel, it almost seems unconnected to what we just read in Isaiah. And, and to me, of all of the passages in the gospels today's passage might be might be one of my favorites but it's also a little confusing because let me tell you what's happening here the text says it says uh, uh they ask him it says what about they they were asking about those whose blood whose galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices what happened here is that these galileans from the temple worshiping they were getting ready to worship their sacrifice were ready and Pilate. Uh, you, may, you may be aware of this. Pilate was the governor of that part of the world. And the governor of that part of the world had one desire and one desire alone. And that was to keep the peace. Pilate wanted peace. Because if it was peace, then you'd pay your taxes. Caesar laid off of him. Life was good. So, but that part of the world, they liked to fuss and fight. So every once in a while, just to get everybody to behave, Pilate would just kill a bunch of people. So these Galileans were worshiping in the temple. And Pilate has them slaughtered. They're in the temple. It says their blood mingled with the sacrifices. In other words, they were getting ready to sacrifice, and then they were killed. And in that culture, in that culture, in that day, bad things happened to you because you had done something wrong. You had done something to make God angry. You'd done something to be punished. Tragedy comes to you. Because you have done something wrong. That was the way they thought. Good thing we don't think like that nowadays, huh? So they basically said, Jesus, what did these guys do? They did something, obviously, because they just got killed. So what did they do? Jesus said nothing. He didn't, well, actually, he didn't answer the question. He said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He said, they were no more wicked than the one who the tower, there's a tower that had fallen off the wall and killed a bunch of people. Said so they were no more wicked than them. Said, so don't worry about them. Worry about you. Worry about you. You repent. You turn to me. You follow me. And you have no control over that. See, what we want, it makes a lot of sense intellectually in our mind. To say, yep, they did something wrong and God was smiting them. They did something wrong and God was getting them. Like, we might not like it, but it makes sense. 
And what Jesus does is Jesus does not answer their question. He doesn't say they did something wrong. He said that they need to repent. You need to repent. We all need to turn to God. That's what he says. And Jesus leaves this, this mystery, this mystery. And that when, it, when we see situations of suffering, when we see situations of pain, when we see situations of tragedy, there's a mystery that we want to be solved that really isn't solvable. We live in a world of brokenness. We live in a world of pain. We live in a world where people are killed for no good reason. We live in a world where children get cancer. We live in a world where families are destroyed. We live in a world where it just doesn't make sense. We want it to make sense. And it drives us crazy because we want it to make sense. And Jesus says this. Yeah, it hurts. You got to trust. You got to trust. Go back to Isaiah. For my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. When life doesn't make sense, we have to trust in the God who invites us to his table. I'm not laying evil at God's feet, y'all. That's not who God is. God's not a God that causes bad things to happen. I had a conversation with somebody this week about that. Somebody emailed me some questions about this. And I said it makes intellectual sense for us to say that, you know, oh, that's, that tragedy, you know, it's just God's will. No, y'all, evil is not the will of God. Suffering is not the will of God. Death is not the will of God. Pain is not the will of God. God does not will bad things to happen. We live in a world where humans have free will to make choices that are sometimes evil. We live in a world that has fallen We live in a world where there is sickness and illness and disease. And that sickness and that illness and that disease is not God's will. That is not how God created things to be. That is the effect of the world that we live in. And one day, one day God's going to fix all that. The Bible says there will come a time when there will be no more sickness, pain, and death. One day that will happen. But until we get there, know two things. Know this first. How did God attack, fix this problem of sin, death, and tragedy? He did not turn a blind eye to it. But as Jennifer told the kids, he sent his son who wept, who wept over sin, who laid down his life so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other founts I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. God did not turn a distant eye to our suffering. But God entered into our suffering. And Jesus Christ suffered as we suffered, was betrayed as we are betrayed, was mocked as we are mocked, was abandoned as we are abandoned. And so in the midst of our pain, when we cry out, why God? We serve a God that says, I know. I know I feel your pain, my child. 
and I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. We serve a God whose power is not shown and that he always stops bad things from happening. We serve a God, this is number two. The power of God is not that he stops bad things from happening. The power of God is there's not a single thing in your life that God cannot use for good. There's not a single part of your life that God cannot bring something good out of. The power of God is not that he stops bad from happening. The power of God is that he can bring good out of everything. There's not a single part of your life. There's not a single part of your story. There's not a single part of your pain that God cannot redeem that God cannot restore, that God cannot bring good out of. And that's what the Bible means when it says all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Not that bad stuff won't happen. Not that towers won't fall. Not that blood won't be mingled. Not that the innocent won't suffer. Because unfortunately, until the Lord returns, that's the world we live in. But the power of God is that he can bring good out of every tragedy. For his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And when life is overwhelming, when life is tough, when life is scary, when you're afraid and alone, remember this. You have a God that says, come. Come to my table. Come eat my food. Come drink my drink. Come. You are welcome. When you cannot, that's the God we serve. When you cannot see God's hand, you have to trust God's heart. When you cannot see God's hand, you have to trust God's heart. He is good. He is love. He is mercy. And when the storm rages, when the fire burns, and you are afraid, do not fear. That says in Isaiah, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Today we are told his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. When the unthinkable comes, when the worries come, when the fear darkens our door, remember this. Our God says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. I love you. My mom used to always say, tragedy will either pull us to God or push us away from God. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. Stand by me. When you cannot see his hand, trust his heart. Trust the God who calls you to himself, who struggled with sin, death, and the grave, and who has overcome. For his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. In the midst of life, trust. Trust. And know that God will bring good out of all of this. Let us pray.